This sermon is brought to you by Shofar East London. Together, living out the fullness of Christ. We hope you enjoy this message. Awesome. Thanks so much, everyone. Um, I'm really excited to be sharing with you this morning. I'm excited because I, yeah, I really feel that there's power not just in the Word of God in general, that's obviously true, but very specifically in what God has laid on my heart to share with you. And, you know, I've never been a fan of, of basketball. To me, what I've, whatever I've seen about it, it, it just looks like it's a, it's a sport where it's very easy to score. And so the teams are just running backward and forward all over the place. And I, I wanted to entitle this message not in my house, and my research showed me that that is actually a basketball term. And when I started to, to look for YouTube clips and, and so forth to educate myself, you know, as one does or has to do, I actually realized that basketball isn't that easy, and, and we're used to seeing these pictures of the guys slam dunking in the videos, but many times there's actually another guy flying in the opposite direction, slapping the ball away out of his hand. And so that's now, that's called a defensive block and if that gets done in a really spectacular way, the famous guys would kind of wag their finger and say to the guy, we just tried to score a goal, not in my house. And that's the title of, of my message this morning. And, you know, this being the year 2020, I, I decided to do a little bit of introspection and thinking. And I asked myself the question, what was the biggest challenge about this year? Maybe you're not so keen to even think about it, so I'll just share what I was able to come up with. But for me, there was a definite common denominator. To me, it came down to this one word, powerlessness. You know, when our president appears on the TV and he starts his speech by saying, my fellow South Africans, and you just have the sense of powerlessness as you know what he's about to say is going to take away this and that about our ability to, to lead a normal life for many of us to actually pursue a living, it was, uh, it, w- it, was, it was a very real sense of being a spectator and watching life happening to us. And, and it got me thinking, what if some of the famous characters in the Bible had been our fellow South Africans during the season? For, for example, Joshua. Joshua had a promise from God about a specific battle where God said, I'm going to give the Amorites over into your hands tomorrow. And so Joshua took that promise and he took his army and they marched through the night, first of all, just to get to the starting line. And then they went into the battle, obviously not feeling rested, but on on the strength of God's promise. And the battle went as God had had promised. He was delivering the Amorites into their hands. But by the the time the sun was about to set, it was becoming apparent that the victory wasn't going to be 100% complete. And, you know, I tend to have a bit of a cinematic imagination. So I picture one of Joshua's captains in the midst of a sword fight turning to Joshua and saying, the sun's going down. They're going to get away. You know, and it's always in an American accent. (laughs) And then to which Joshua replies, not in my house. And he turns to the sun and the moon and he tells the sun and moon to stand still in the sky, which the sun and moon then does so that they have enough time to actually finish the victory that God had given to him in the form of a promise. And I want to relate that back to how many of us experienced this year, 2020, 
And I want to ask the question, what, what if we aren't actually powerless spectators when we see things going in a different direction to what we've actually been promised by the Word of God? What if we actually do have authority and power to stand up like Joshua did and say, I see this is about to happen. This doesn't line up with what God has promised for me and for my house. So I'm going to stand up and say, not in my house. I make the rules here. You don't get to do what you want, even though it seems there's, there's no natural reason for that to work. So I'm wanting us to, to go on a little bit of a journey through a portion of Scripture that has really become quite, quite dear to me. Um, I, would, I would go so far as to say that it's my favorite, my new favorite scripture, my new favorite chapter in the Bible. And I, I don't think it's one of those that many people would list first, but it's, it's Matthew chapter 16. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to be paraphrasing quite a lot of the story, but I want us to take the full run-up into the section that I'm eventually going to be digging into. I'm going to be digging into sort of the middle part of the chapter, verses 18 and 19 specifically, but in order for us to actually get the full context and kind of walk a mile in the disciples' shoes so that we get to hear what they were hearing when Jesus was speaking to them. So with that said, I actually want to ask, please take the time to go and read the chapter yourself. My paraphrasing might be somewhat entertaining, but it's not the Word of God. Please, please, I want to invite you to actually go and spend time with the Word of God and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you about this as well. So just before we dig into that, I just want to pray for us. Father God, we want to thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you for your Word. Lord, that is such a a rich treasure, God, that you've given us. Thank you for everything that your Word says about who you are and what you've done. Lord, we thank you this morning for everything your Word says about who we are, about the identity that you've given us, and the calling that you've called us with, and the gifts that you've given us, Lord. In Jesus' name, I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and come and stir our hearts, Lord. Come and light the flames, Lord, in our hearts of agreement with your word, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Awesome. So, like I said, let's take a bit of a run-up into Matthew chapter 16. And what, what we see in the chapters preceding that is that Jesus and the disciples were, were traveling around quite a bit. And there seems to be a theme about the way that this went. They would go to a town, and then Jesus would heal the sick and cast out demons and people that were blind, they could see again. And people would just bring all of their sick, everybody that needed this type of encounter, they would bring them to Jesus And many times Jesus would sit seemingly from morning till evening just healing people. So much so that there are parts of the Bible where it talks about Jesus actually not having time to just break for a meal. And so this is how industrious they were, Jesus and the disciples, as they were going around. And keep in mind, for example, in in the Gospel of John, John actually writes that he's only kind of scratched the surface in the things that he's written in his Gospel. And he talks about how Jesus did so many things that he reckons if they were all to be written down, the world itself wouldn't have enough space to contain all the books. So I'm wanting us to get a picture of how how busy and how industrious Jesus and the disciples actually were as they were traveling from place to place. And, And the need for what they were offering was so great 
that people were flocking to them from all over the place without any regard for their basic daily needs. And so when Jesus and the disciples actually planned to take a bit of a break and to get away maybe to a remote and a quiet place so they could recharge, and this is typically where Jesus would go up onto a hill or a mountain and he would spend some time in prayer, have some alone time. Every now and then we actually see how the people figured out where the disciples and Jesus had arranged for their little getaway to be. So they get there, get off of the boat, and instead of finding peace and quiet, they find a hill covered with people with wide eyes full of anticipation and need because they so want to encounter more of the kingdom of God. And that in itself I find to be such a beautiful picture because these people essentially, they'd emptied their fuel tanks on a one-way trip in the hopes of encountering God. That's such a beautiful picture. How many times have we done that? Or when last have we actually done that? Empty your tanks, put all your tips down on this opportunity to encounter God. And so you can imagine Jesus was incredibly moved when he would see that. And the Bible talks about how he's moved with compassion for these people. And so you could almost make the argument that Jesus, through doing so many signs and wonders and so many miracles, had created a little bit of a problem for himself. And it's interesting for me how he solves the problem by doing another sign or another miracle. So he takes the five loaves and two fishes and he multiplies it and he feeds all of them before sending them back home. And we also know that this didn't just happen once. There was also a second time at least recorded in Scripture where it was another multitude of 4,000 men plus 10 women and children. And again, Jesus multiplied food so that he could feed the multitudes. And so this is the run-up leading into Matthew chapter 16. And so if we start in Matthew chapter 16, the first thing that we see is that the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, we want you to perform a sign for us. Now, if you just jump in and read from Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, that wouldn't really strike you as odd or comical. But I think if you, if you look at the run-up to this verse, what was actually happening, it's, it's comical for me that the, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would come to Jesus when he's obviously been doing signs and wonders and miracles morning till evening for a very long time. And they say, Jesus, can you do a sign for us? There's a, there's a parallel account of this, of this story in, in Mark chapter 8, and it, also, it actually talks about how Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. I, I kind of wish that I could see his face, you know, when, when that happened. It makes me think of, you know, in the film industry, you have what is called a script supervisor, and the script supervisor is somebody who's got a couple of responsibilities, but one of them is that they need to make sure that there aren't any continuity errors on the movie set or on the TV set. So, so what we see if we're watching an episode of a series or a movie is a, is a bunch of different scenes that are shot over many different days, and, and they're actually put together to form a relatively short scene or movie. So when the actors come back day after day for these short little clips that are eventually put together. Somebody has to make sure that they are dressed the same, that the hairstyle is actually the same, so that the continuity of, of the storyline that they're actually trying to portray is preserved. And 
They need to make sure that the, you know, the vase of flowers on the, on the table stays in the same place and so forth. So I've got a couple of examples of a, little, of a few interesting um, failures when it comes to the, the script supervisor. I believe that's where, where Maximus turns to the emperor and then he says, are you not interplained? And we've got the, the pirate of the Caribbean, obviously also a basketball player. And on, on the next slide, this is the type of, the type of thing that, we, that I'm actually wanting to get to. This is the movie The Terminator 2. The scene on the left happens before the scene on the right. So we see he's got some shotgun bullet holes in his jacket. But don't worry, he's a cyborg. And then a couple of scenes later, still fighting the same guy. He's obviously wearing a brand new jacket. And it seems to me that the job of being a script supervisor is not quite as easy as what it might appear. There are many ways, I think, that we can lose the continuity of a storyline. And so I believe that this is, this is what happened with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They weren't ignorant of the fact that Jesus was doing all of these things, but for some reason they, they just couldn't connect the dots. So they had to fire the script supervisor in their brains and appoint a new one that was actually going to be doing the job. And it's not just the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus, in the very next part of this story, actually has to address the disciples as well. And so we see that they'd just gotten off of a boat, having crossed the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples somehow realized that they'd messed up the logistics and they didn't bring enough bread. So if it was the 12 disciples and Jesus, at the very least, they had 12 people, and apparently there was only one loaf of bread. And the disciples were very very nervous about having messed this up. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to disappoint Jesus either. And so at this very time, Jesus begins to speak to them, and he, and he says, I want you to beware and be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples then obviously interpret this as Jesus' funny way of rebuking them for not bringing enough bread. And then Jesus has to actually come forward and say, guys, no, we're missing each other completely. I'm actually wanting to talk to you about X, Y, and Z, but it's clear to me that you need a recap of A, B, and C. And so here is the recap of A, B, and C. We don't have enough bread. That's fine. Remember that time when we had 5,000 people and we only had five loaves and two fish? How did that go? And the disciples, actually, they know the facts. So they say, Jesus, we, we collected 12 baskets of leftovers. Okay, and that other time when there were 4,000 people, 4,000 men besides women and children, how did that go? And we collected seven baskets of leftovers. And so Jesus actually asked them, so how is it that you don't understand? How is it that you can't connect the dots? It's not, see, it's not like they were ignorant of the, of the fact. It's just that the line of thought had a squiggle in it. And they, their script supervisor wasn't actually doing, doing his job. Doing his job. And so Jesus had to, had to address that. And the interesting thing for me is as soon as he did that, the Bible actually says that they immediately understood Jesus' reference about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He didn't have to explain that to them again. So just as an aside, 
I feel like there's some of us that we need to fire the script supervisor from our brain and appoint a new one that's actually going to do the job. And as we do that, there are many things that are actually going to all of a sudden become clearer and make more sense. That's why it's so important for us to actually to value testimonies and to value the details of how God has proven himself faithful to us over time. Because if we, if we forget that, then the continuity errors begin to slip in in the way that we think and the way that we remember. And I think many of us might be tricked even, even in thinking about this year. You know, the way that God helps us and the way that God comes and he, and he sorts out things like provision and encouragement, it's, it's easy to mistakenly attribute that to, oh, well, I just got lucky. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And that, so it's so important for us to actually recount the testimonies and value them so that those continuity errors don't begin to creep into our perception and our perspective on reality. Amen. So with that now being a, a fairly lengthy introduction, I'm wanting us to actually get into the, into the meat of our message. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to read, first of all, just from verse 13 through to 19. And then there, there are two specific aspects of this chapter or, or this portion of Scripture that I really want to, to dig into. So from verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. He said to them, But who do you yourselves say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It's a wonderfully rich piece of scripture, and I'm sure many of you have heard many sermons about it. I've also heard lots of messages and teachings around this piece of scripture, but I've actually never encountered what I encountered this year as I was just struck by this portion of scripture. So the first thing that I want to highlight for us is this, this concept that Jesus is introducing, I'm building my church. It's interesting for me that if you look into it, the, the word church, it's, a, it's an example, and there are a couple of them that I can think of, of a word that was kind of invented to go into the Bible. They, they didn't need a word like church because the word that gets used in the original language is actually, it's just a, a normal everyday word. It's, it's, a, it's actually an assembly, just a gathering. And the word baptism is another example. There was no need really for, when they translated the King James Bible, there was no need to invent a churchy sounding word like baptism, because they actually just use the everyday word for immersion or dipping underwater. So that's, I find that quite fascinating. But so this word that means assembly, it's the Greek word ecclesia. And, and more specifically, it, it's actually a word that comes out of the Greek secular culture. 
So at the time that Jesus used it for the first time, it's a word that maybe his audience would have been familiar with, but it had nothing to do with religion for them. They would have understood that this is a, a, a gathering. Let me give you the Merriam-Webster definition. It's a political assembly of citizens of ancient Greek states, especially this, the periodic meeting of the Athenian citizens for conducting public business and for considering affairs proposed by the council. You know, so, so much for that kind of ideal that I know I had that church and politics should have nothing in common. When Jesus introduces his church for the first time, he's actually using a word that is almost explicitly linked to politics. The, the Passion Translation actually has a, has a beautiful rendering of it. The Passion Translation says that I will build my church, my legislative assembly. And so that's the, that's the accurate portrayal, actually, of what Jesus was talking about. So it's, it's a gathering of citizens in the marketplace, not, not a religious gathering on a Sunday. And so typically you would need to have a minimum number of people for that gathering to be legitimate. But when you have that gathering, they carry the authority of the state of which they are citizens. So in the same way, we can think about what Jesus says, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am. So the church that Jesus was actually introducing to the disciples and to his followers, it by no means refers to a religious gathering on a Sunday. And so what I'm wanting to get at today is, is not about changing what we do on a Sunday. I feel the Lord is challenging us to completely transform what we do Monday through to Saturday and how we understand that to fit in with our idea of church. So here's an example of a, a legislative assembly the U.S. House of Congress is a legislative assembly, and this is just out of Wikipedia. Congress can establish post offices and post roads, issue patents and copyrights, fix standards of weights and measures, establish courts, and make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. And Congress has the power to admit new states in, into the Union. So, so this assembly and this gathering is actually called to make the rules. We are not called to, like many of us might have felt we were doing this year, to be spectators helplessly watching things begin to derail when God has actually said, I will build my church. My church is a legislative assembly. In other words, the church is there to actually make the rules and say, speak to that train that is looking like it's wanting to derail and say to it, not in my house, not in my city, you don't get to do that. This doesn't get to happen here. Does that make sense to everyone? So before we dig into that a little bit deeper and get a bit more practical, there's another thing that I wanted to highlight as well, and that is the fact that Jesus is touching on this thing called the gates of Hades. Now, Again, I've, I've heard many messages about it, and, and I think a lot of us understand that if Jesus says, okay, I'm building my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, that means that the church is not designed to be defensive. The church is actually designed to be on, on the offense, because if you're defending, then you're obviously never going to encounter the gates of the enemy kingdom. You need to be advancing and taking territory for that to make sense. 
I agree with that. That's 100%. And I think we intuitively understand that when Jesus says the gates of Hades, he's kind of generally referring to the kingdom of darkness and the seat of power of the kingdom of darkness. So that, again, it's 100% correct. But I firmly believe that that doesn't fully capture everything that Jesus was specifically communicating with his disciples on that day. Because we see that this happened when they got to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which was a, a town which seemed to be this, the center of convergence for a whole lot of different cultures and religions. So you had the, the Greek worship of their different gods and, and the Romans and many of the other ancient cultures. And so it was known as a, as a bit of a contemporary Sodom and Gomorrah, especially for the, for the Jewish people. And in particular, there was, there was an actual physical place that had a cave, and out of the cave came an underground spring or a water source. And this spring or water source was so deep that at that time they hadn't successfully or accurately plumbed its depth. They just didn't have the kind of equipment to do that. So the popular belief was that, especially in the Greek culture, that that was the river that comes out of the underworld. The Greeks have the river sticks running in the underworld, and that was actually called the Gates of Hades. So it was a physical place that stood there like this massive object and obstruction on the, on the spiritual landscape. And so as Jesus and his disciples were walking past that thing, he introduces his church, and he says, I will build my church. It's a legislative assembly, and... This thing that you see here that's making the hair on the back of your head wanting to stand on end, that will not prevail against it. So I believe what that actually leaves us with is we need to ask ourselves, what, what is the gates of Hades to me? What is the thing on my spiritual landscape that wants to taunt me and, and scream at me, I'm your worst nightmare? It might be the economy, it might be corruption in government, it might be COVID-19, any one of these things. But Jesus, when he introduces his church, he's actually wanting us to understand that whatever is that big, giant, intimidating you on your landscape, some people say it might be Eskom with load shedding returning, but whatever that is, Jesus actually introduces his church and he says, guys, you are, you're not meant to be a religious gathering exclusively. I've actually called you to be a legislative assembly that gets to stand up and say in your city, in your household, in your place of work, this doesn't happen in my house. And we can make the rules that we can, like the scripture says, we can bind what has been bound in heaven and loose what has been loosed in heaven. Amen. So you might say to me, okay, Dion, look, that's, that's a wonderful sentiment. But do you really think that things can change? Do you really look at South Africa and the way that things are going at the moment? Do you really think that it can change? And the short answer is yes. And to help convince you of that, because I can, I can give you an academic reasoning, and I can tell you why I think this is the truth. 
but I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is actually going to take this word and make it come alive in us. It's going to become like a flame that burns in us that that declaration of not in my house is going to come with so much conviction and so much authority that our cityscapes and, and our communities are going to begin to change. So I'm wanting us to look at two short little video clips. And this, it comes out of a book that I've, that I've read recently. It's a book by Ed Silvoso called Ecclesia. And so he obviously dives into this in a, in a lot greater depth. But it's, it, I can really recommend it if, if this speaks to you and, and you want to learn more about it. I encourage you to get hold of it and read it. But it has a lot of testimonies about cities where the church in the city has basically just stood up and grabbed a hold of this mantle and this authority that, that, that they've been given. And there are these amazing testimonies of cities that just suddenly began to turn around. I want to actually point out a couple more details, especially in, in the case of the second city, Ciudad Juarez. That guy that was on screen last, Pastor Poncho, it seems to literally have just started with him saying yes to God and the authority that God has. So he went to this high place, and like he said, he, he made this proclamation over the city that you are no longer an orphan, you've been adopted by God. And that's such a beautiful example of, of taking up that mantle of authority. And in a sense, he just went to a, to a place and declared over the city and spoke to the enemy and said, not in my house. We're going to begin to make the rules. And so what happened is God spoke to him and said, I want you to hand over your, your church to your second-in-charge pastor, and I want you to do a 21-day fast. And he pitched a tent at the entrance of the city, and he was going to fast for 21 days. And somehow a newspaper journalist heard about a crazy, angry guy who went on a hunger strike, and he went to speak to him. And so I explained, no, he's not angry at anybody. He's fasting and praying, and then he's trusting that God is going to speak to him. And the journalist went back and mentioned this to his editor. And when, he, when the editor heard that this guy believes that God's going to speak to him, he says to the journalist, okay, well, here's what you're going to do. Go back there every day, and whatever he tells you God told him, we'll put that in the newspaper. And so just like that, the prophetic, encouraging word of God suddenly started appearing in the newspaper day by day. And by the time he, the 21-day fast was over, there was apparently gatherings of about 4,000 people happening at that tent, and people getting prayer, prayers answered and healing. And very soon after that, a new mayor was elected in, in the city. And one of the first things that the mayor did is, is he called on, on this pastor and asked him, how do we sort out this state prison that's in our city? It's severely overpopulated. They're saying about 80% of all of the crime in the city was being orchestrated from within the prison. 60% of the inmates had the key to their own cell. So they, they were operating drug businesses out of their cells and making more money than they would if they were outside of the prison. So this prison was the epitome of the gates of Hades. And so God arranged for a new mayor to be appointed. The new mayor asked for this pastor to advise him, how do, we, how do we take this prison? And so he put together a team that was essentially a little ecclesia, and they put these principles into action, and they 
took the prison back. The, the prison was designed for about 1,000 inmates. They, I think they had more than doubled that in there at one stage. So they got everything working the way it should be, and I think about 600 of the 1,000 inmates were members then of a church inside the prison. So they literally co-opted the gates of Hades, and they partnered with God in order for the kingdom of heaven to come right there. And, and so the testimony just carries on and on. When that happened, things actually initially got worse in the city because now all the criminal elements were on the streets instead of operating from a prison where they were actually running the show. But it's just an incredible story of how God orchestrated this transformation, and it's through the church and individuals actually saying yes to the original mandate, what God has for the church. And, and I'm particularly excited about the fact that this is, so this doesn't change what we actually do on a Sunday. There's nothing wrong with what we do on a Sunday. What this actually speaks to is what are we doing on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, through to Saturday, specifically in the marketplace and businesses. In the case of the, the, the city in, in California, Vallejo City, this guy, Michael Brown, had a transportation business, and people would just wander into his offices, and he would have his staff just sit down and pray for them. And, and so people were getting healed while it was meant to be business as usual. So I'm wanting to challenge those of us who are business owners especially what, is, what does business as usual look like in the kingdom? And so let's get practical just before we close. Let me try and have a look at how much time we have left. What, what does this mean for us? I think what I really want us, want us to take out of that is whenever there are two or more of us gathered, then God is present with us and the authority of his kingdom is with us. And then we, we've been called to bind those things that we see here on earth that we don't see in heaven. So whether it's corruption, sickness, bankruptcy, unemployment, all, all of those things, we get to take the keys of the kingdom of heaven and bind that. So if you're having lunch with a colleague or you're driving somewhere on a lift club, maybe you've got a commute, wherever you get a chance to take a little bit of time with one other believer... Take some time, find one thing that you see here on earth that is not present in heaven and bind that using the keys of the kingdom. And also identify one thing that you see in heaven that you don't see here and loose that, release that over this community. And we can begin to permeate our community with the decrees of heaven being released all over the place backed fully by the authority and the power of the king, not just happening on a Sunday. I'm excited about what, what this can look like. This is really exciting. Thank you for listening. Find more on Shofar East London's podcast channel. Let's do life together.